Father, we are thankful, as always, that we have an opportunity to open your word. Uh, Father, uh, I am so easily willing to forget that every time I open my Bible and every time I have a chance to ponder the mysteries you've hidden in it for me, that there are so many people, Father, that don't have the opportunity to do that. First and foremost, Father, there are so many who would never want to, who don't know what they're missing, who will only understand it one day when it's too late. But by your grace and mercy, Father, you've brought me to faith in a way that gives me the opportunity to understand all those things even now, even as I wait, Father, for the chance to be in your presence. And, Father, we're thankful that we have been included in the family of God, that we have your word, that we can meditate upon it, and we can see the fruit, Father, that comes from study of it. And we are thankful, Father, that in this fellowship where we are gathered week after week, worshiping in spirit and in truth, that we are surrounded by those who share the same desire, who are like-minded, Father, who have been called likewise to a study of your word, to worshiping, Father, and to spending time with one another. Uh, Let these opportunities, Father, never escape our attention. And, Father, let them always be first in our minds and in our hearts. And then, Father, as we have devoted ourselves to study and to preaching of the word, it is so important to us, Father, that we preach it correctly, that the truth, Father, not be tainted by our own perceptions and by our own misunderstandings or even, Father, our own fleshly desires. Strip those away by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray, Father, and let only your truth remain. Guide us to it, Father. Store it in our hearts. Make it real. And give us, Father, the desire and the ability to respond to it. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. We're starting a new chapter, as I said. We're going to go through this chapter in a number of weeks. It is a very uh, diverse chapter. There is a lot in this chapter, as is the case in most of Luke's chapters, of course. But there seems to be a very disconnected flow. If you were to read through the chapter in one reading, uh, you would find yourself moving from one event to the next and perhaps not understanding why they're all in one chapter. What is the connection? We'll build that idea as we move through it. I don't intend to bring that to the message today. But the first teaching, the first two teachings really out of the chapter will be the focus for the day. And those two teachings, and particularly the second one, are arguably the most famous in Jesus' teaching. The parable of the sower probably is the one most people are familiar with if they're familiar with anything out of the Gospels. If you were a Jewish farmer, let's say, or a tradesman, somebody, an an everyday commoner of that day, and you were following Jesus around in the crowd, much like the people that are there now today in this story, and you see Jesus, you see this man of amazing power, and you hear his teaching, and you hear the power in the teaching itself, and you see his miracles, and you're a part of all that's going on around him in this crowd as he moves around from town to town. And you notice not just what he's doing, but you also notice the man. You notice his kindness. You notice that he's genuinely somebody who cares about the people he's ministering to, which is a very different experience from what you're used to with the other religious leaders of the day who seem to only care about themselves. You see all of this, you marvel at him, and then you also notice the reactions of the crowd itself. You notice that in this crowd you have, on the one hand, scoffers. You have men like the Pharisees and the scribes who... You hear them whispering in the crowd. They're declaring that this man is possessed by a demon or that he is not to be believed, that he is simply out for his own good or for his own uh, benefit. They mock him. They say that he is somebody who is trying to tear down the law of Moses. They say that he's violating that very law, in fact. They say that he's encouraging others to violate the law. So there's this whole crowd of scoffers or group of scoffers in the crowd who are saying at all times negative things about what they're seeing. And they dismiss Christ entirely. Then you see this next group. There's another group following Christ around, probably, and I would call them opportunists. They're people who are attracted by the prospect of the quick healing or of some other way to maybe make money off of what's going on around them in the crowd. Maybe they uh, aren't really any more interested in what Jesus is teaching than the first group, but they're pretending to have more interest in him. They're at least giving him lip service. They're pretending to be one of his followers. And then there's probably some in the crowd who truly do feel a calling to be there, to follow Jesus. They admire him. Maybe they even call him a prophet. And they understand his teaching, at least to some extent, and and they say they're willing to follow it. But then there's the ones in the crowd who really begin to understand what they're watching and what they're seeing. They even begin to say, maybe this is the Messiah. 
Maybe this is the anointed one. Maybe this is the son of David we've been promised all along. And while you're watching all these people and watching what they're saying and what they're doing, the thought comes to your mind, why is it that his power and his miracles and his teaching drives so many different reactions? Why aren't those things driving everyone to the same conclusion? They're so dramatic. They're so astounding. How is it then that one group could scoff and call him a loser and a violator of the law, while another group could call him the Messiah? They're seeing the same things. Well, that's the question that leads us into the events of Luke chapter 8. Chapter 8 begins with Jesus addressing the very issue of why there is such a diverse perspective within the crowd about who he is and what he came for. Let's go to Luke 8, verse 1. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Shusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. We'll pause here for a minute because this is really almost an aside before we get into the heart of the parable today. Luke is really just stepping back for a moment out of the story of Jesus and out of the story of his teaching just long enough to make note of something that he thinks is important for the reader. He simply is just going to make note of the way by which Jesus was able to live this life of an itinerant preacher. Itinerant. It just means somebody who's traveling from place to place. He really doesn't have a home. He never has a pulpit from which he preaches. His role is to move around constantly and preach wherever he ends up. That's itinerant. That's what Jesus was. But you and I instantly understand the difficulty of living that kind of lifestyle. The moment you become itinerant, you largely lose the opportunity to hold a job of any real significance. You lose the ability to provide for yourself if you're going to be itinerant. There's been many famous men over history that have taken on a role like that. A man named Whitfield in the early days of the American colonies had a lifestyle as an itinerant minister. He was actually English, and he crossed the Atlantic more times in his lifetime than any other man on earth. He crossed the Atlantic 19 times in his life in order to come to the colonies and ride by horse from New England all the way down to Georgia and back several times each time he would come over. And the whole time he was moving from church to church to church, preaching as an itinerant preacher. Where do you think his money came from? Well, where do you think Jesus' ability to live came from? One of the things I like about this detail is that Luke is addressing a question that anyone who is a critical thinker is going to bring up. If they look at the gospel and they say, well, how can this be true? I mean, come on. The guy never has a job. He never has a house. He just All we hear about is how he walks around and talks. Nobody lives like that. How could he have possibly survived? Well, Luke, and only Luke, by the way, includes this detail because he wants you to appreciate that, in fact, it did require support for Jesus to do what he's doing, just as we would have assumed it would. And that support came principally from the crowd itself, and he notes three people in particular, and they're all women, which is very interesting. First, of course, there was Mary Magdalene. Her name actually comes from the fact that her hometown was Magdala. You know, she didn't have a true last name. She was a woman. And in that culture, there was no need for her to have a last name. I know that sounds terrible, but in the day, that's how women were looked upon. So her name actually reflects her first name and the town she was from. And we're told she had seven spirits in her. She was healed of those seven spirits. She was, uh, the, the possession was removed by Jesus. And then she became a devoted follower. Then there's Joanna. She is, in fact, so faithful to Jesus' ministry, we will eventually hear of her mentioned in the gospel as being present, not only at his crucifixion, but she also goes to his tomb. She never leaves his side throughout his ministry. She, though, specifically is said to be connected with Herod's household, meaning, if the very least, she had either money herself or connection to money. In fact, it's kind of interesting how high up in the hierarchy of the government in that day, Jesus had actually penetrated already. He was already attracting followers. And like Mary Magdalene, it's said that this woman, Joanna, had been healed. All of these people are said to have been healed. So likewise, she was healed of something and came into his ministry as a function of that healing. As a result of her being healed, she quickly decided she wanted to be a part of his ministry. And then there's Susanna. Nothing is said about her. The only thing we can assume is she must have been prominent in the early church. And because she was prominent, Luke didn't see any need to explain anything. He just mentioned her name. 
It could have been that after Jesus was crucified, Susanna stayed in the church and actually became someone of some note, of some importance in the church. The point of all this, of course, is that these women, and as the scripture says, many others in the crowd as well, were contributing to Jesus' ministries. You know, Jesus basically lived his life like any full-time minister would have to live if, if his priority was doing the work of the ministry rather than living a, quote, normal life. Clearly, Jesus' ministry had to be this way, and many other ministers the same way. I wouldn't make it a rule, however. It is not right to say that because this is Jesus' particular style of ministry, anyone who would choose to be called into ministry, or wrong way to put it, right, choose to respond to their call into ministry, would automatically be required to do exactly what Jesus did. There's a million ways to serve in ministry. What is important, however, is to understand there is some, there are some who will do ministry in the way Jesus did, and as a result, they, they need the support of those they minister to. Do you notice that it is in the women that Jesus healed that he is specifically noted as gaining his benefit, his income? It seems to me that it suggests a rule of sorts. Those to whom we look for the greatest ministerial benefit, whether it's, and of course I'm standing up here with some interest in this discussion, so I don't mean to put it in terms of myself, but if I were in a church and I had a pastor or a youth leader, let's say, or somebody in other, another teaching ministry on the radio, or even it could be just a neighbor, Somebody who you feel God has put in your life specifically to minister to your needs and you see those needs being met by that person, then I would think that scripture gives us a precept that we, more than others, are those who should be supporting that person. It's not just everyone has some random, equal you know, responsibility. It is that in the lives of certain ministers, certain people benefit disproportionately compared to others. And it is on them that the burden lies to support that person disproportionately. These women, clearly having been healed, felt a calling to be with this man, to be with Jesus, and more than that, to find ways to support his ministry. While I'm sure there were others in the crowd who benefited to some lesser degree and probably gave to a lesser amount in support of his ministry. That's a general rule I would think you can apply out of Scripture. Now the question is, where do you feel God pulling you in terms of providing that support? And that's something we should all seek in, in prayer in order to find out. But after this teaching, and I do want to move on, because obviously the focus for today is moving more now into the parable. So let's move on, as Luke does himself. And he returns into Jesus' teaching in verse 4. In Luke chapter 8, verse 4, he asks, or he describes Jesus' teaching in this way. When a large crowd was coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. Now, Jesus provides the parable first. Later, he provides the interpretation for the disciples. And we're going to take it in two parts as well. Luke here, as we said, is, is returned to describing Jesus' teaching. And he's describing his teaching by the, talking about its effect on the crowd. Remember, as I introduced the teaching this morning, I said it was probably the case that if you were a part of that crowd, you would have seen different reactions in the crowd to Jesus' teaching. And you might have wondered... Why doesn't everybody see it the way I do? And here, Luke actually deals with that issue. And it's a good point in the gospel for him to do it, because going up till chapter 8, we've seen him contending time and time again with the scoffers in the form of the Pharisees, but on the other hand, dealing with people of great faith, like the Roman soldier, or like the widow with the son, people who responded in faith to the miracles they saw. So we've already seen in the gospel so far this clear distinction between how people reacted to Jesus. So now it seems apparent that Jesus is ready to deal with that issue in the form of this parable. And he tells, I guess what you might say is one of the most famous, if not the most famous parable of all his ministry, the parable of the sower and the seed, we call it. There are at least as many ways to interpret this parable incorrectly as there are ways to interpret it correctly. And it has been my experience as I've read and listened to others teach on this parable that it is rare in my experience, and I don't mean to set myself up as the expert by any stretch, 
But I think, based on some clues within the parable, it's fair to say, there are far more people teaching it incorrectly than correctly. My goal today is to show you, out of the book itself, why we can see some things and know what's true. We want to begin by paying close attention to all the details of this parable. Secondly, we have to keep in mind the context. Jesus is telling this parable in a given context, to a crowd, at a certain point in his ministry, and also, more specifically, to the disciples at a particular point in their growth. Let's begin with background. A Palestinian farmer, and this is in the Palestinian region, Palestinian lands, Palestinian farmer would typically walk to his field in order to sow it along a very narrow, worn path. You and I may have the impression that he lived on his land. That's not always the case. In many cases, they were not actually living on the land because to live on the land meant to take away land that you were needing to sow on, to grow produce on. So they might live in their father's house, as is often the case, and own part of the family land in some corner that was not necessarily connected to the home. It might be quite a walk away to get to the land. So it was common in that day for a a farmer, someone who's going to sow his field, to have a coarse sown bag of seed slung around their neck, around their shoulder, and walk along this very narrow, very hard-worn path in uh, in the pasture to the point where their actual plot lay, where they could sow that part of the land. Now, occasionally, as you might imagine, a bag would leak seed. It would either be coming out a little bit, dribbling out here and there. Or at the very least, when he was sowing the field, of course, as he picks up a handful of seed and begins to lay it down in the rows that are prepared, it's not going to be a perfect science. Some is going to fall out on the way in and out of the bag and as he t- tries to sow the field. So I want you, to get, want you to have the impression that the people in this parable would have had, which is that it's natural for seed to fall in places other than where you're trying to put it. Now, if you're careful about it, you're not going to lose very much, but you can't avoid some loss. It goes with the territory. As you read it through with me, it's pretty obvious right from the beginning there's four conditions here. There's four conditions Christ is describing. Now, each condition has some things in common, and each condition has some things that are different. So we're going to begin by looking at what each has in common. For example, each condition has a farmer. That goes without saying. You can't sow seed without a farmer. The farmer, though, is not the point of the parable. Did you notice that? There's no discussion of who the farmer is. There's no discussion about how he does his work. There's no critique about whether he did it well in one case or poorly in the next case. The farmer is just not the point at all. He simply has to be there because otherwise how would the seed make its way out of the bag? But apart from that, we don't care about the farmer. He's not the point in the parable. In fact, if we had to rate the farmer's performance in the way he's sowing seed here, I guess it's fair to say that he's fairly sloppy as farmers go. In other words, if you were a farmer listening to this parable, you might be chuckling as Jesus told it. You might be thinking to yourself, what an idiot. He's throwing seed everywhere. He's not going to get very far doing that. So at first glance, if you don't know better, you're hearing this parable come out of Jesus' mouth and your thinking begins at least to say, Well, he's teaching us about being good farmers. He's teaching us about how being a poor farmer can lead to no produce. But it's not the point of the parable once you get down to the detail. Jesus says, some seed falls on the road, some in rocky soil, some in thorns, but only a portion falls on good soil. It's as if this farmer has an unlimited supply of seed, and so he doesn't have to worry about whether he's being precise or not. He just throws it anywhere. He's completely indiscriminate. He's just, I mean, if you want to get a silly picture in your mind, imagine the guy walking down the, 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 the path. He's got a couple of bags of seed on either side of him. And he's just doing this as he walks. He's just being completely careless and cavalier about where he throws his seed around. And if you were another farmer watching that, you'd be going, what is wrong with that guy? Doesn't he understand how this process works? So that's the beginning scene. Jesus has described four conditions with a common farmer who really doesn't know how to farm. And that brings us to the seed. The seed is also the same in all four conditions. We're not talking about good seed and bad seed. We're not talking about the seed itself being better in some cases than in others, and that explains the difference in the produce. No, it's the same seed. You have the same farmer with the same seed. And... uh, The seed, therefore, having the same potential to bring growth and to bring fruit, and the farmer being the same in every case, that leaves us with very little else to go by. What's the difference then? 
What drives the difference here in the outcome between the four conditions? Well, there's two things that drive the difference. First, and obviously, there's a difference in the soil. Some have even called this the parable of the four soils, because that is so clearly the main emphasis of the parable. In the first condition, for example, we really don't have any soil at all, do we? If you've ever gone camping, maybe backpacking, or just gone on a wilderness hike, you know what these narrow wilderness paths look like, don't you? They're hard packed from the from the walking. They're so hard packed, in fact, that that dirt is almost like cement. You, you'd have to take a pickaxe to actually break through that top layer and get down to any soil you could possibly farm. So knowing that, if you take a, a seed and drop it on that dense packed earth, what are the odds that it's going to germinate under those conditions? Virtually nil. In fact, I think it would be impossible, don't you? Meanwhile, it stands out like a sore thumb. Here's this worn path and a seed sitting right there on top. Any bird who's looking for a quick meal is going to see that seed in no time and pick it up. It won't stay there very long, in other words. Well, that's seed condition number one, or earth condition number one, soil condition number one. Second condition, the soil's a little looser. It makes for uh, the seed to drop in enough that it can start to germinate, that it can start to grow. But in the Palestinian region, now that the parable talks about rocky soil, I've got to fix a perspective in your mind. We're not talking about soil with rocks in it. We're talking about South Texas soil. Palestinian soil is a lot like South Texas soil. There's a thin layer of topsoil that you could actually grow things in. The problem is that you dig very deep and what do you hit? Limestone rock. And that's very much what's in this region. Rock substrate that is right below the surface in many areas of the Palestinian lands. You had to go into the valleys to find fertile land that was not, uh, did not have rock under it. If you came up into the wilderness hills, you quickly found yourself in a place where there was very little topsoil to work with and mostly rock underneath. You couldn't really farm it effectively. That's what's meant here by rocky ground. Ground you'd never try to farm on because the effect of rocky ground is this. The, the soil on top, because it's got rock underneath it, is actually fairly loose. It can't compact very easily because it's not very deep. So a soil, when a seed falls on that kind of soil, it can germinate very quickly for two reasons. Because of the limited depth of the soil, any water that hits it at all begins to concentrate in that upper level and quickly germinates a seed. Secondly, after growth begins, it's got very quick access to the air and to the sunlight. It's not coming up from a deep down place in the earth. It's very near the surface. So it actually has the effect of promoting quicker growth than a deeper soil would. But there's a catch. And the catch is that once it begins to truly grow and the root tries to seek a deeper place for water, it can't find anything. And so it's limited to this very thin layer of dirt. And the first time we get a period of drought or any kind of stress on the plant from heat, etc., it has very little chance of surviving through that point. So with rocky soil, you get the appearance of growth or the, uh, the appearance of a healthy plant very quickly because of the nature of the growth. But it can't last under those conditions. Then there's the third condition. The third condition is actually soil very well suited to growth. It's good soil. It's not rocky. It's got plenty of depth. It's deep and it's rich. But the problem here is that the soil is contaminated. The problem here is that the soil isn't limited to simply the seed. It's got unhealthy plants in it as well. Those plants, as Jesus said, choke off the plant and prevent it from actually producing any fruit. It never can reach the point of maturity where it can produce fruit. Finally, the fourth condition, the soil is prepared. It's the best place to plant. It's soft. It's deep. It has no contaminants. And so the growth that takes place there produces fruit. The place where you want to plant, right? Now, as Jesus presents this parable, he first lays out the parable, as I just said. Then he's going to go into an interpretation, which we're going to follow with. But before he does that, he stops because the disciples begin to question him about why he's teaching in parables. Look at verse 9. His disciples began questioning him as, what, as to what this parable meant. And he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. This is not the first parable, remember. But I have to imagine this one was so inscrutable. It seemed so impenetrable. They heard the words, but the disciples couldn't begin to understand what Christ was talking about. 
Because remember, you and I sit here having read the rest of the story at some point in the past. We know what the interpretation is. We know, for example, what the seed is. And if you don't, we're going to go through that today. But in the moment they first heard it, they don't know what he's talking about. Why are we on agriculture all of a sudden, Jesus? Why is farming now the topic of the day? We don't get this. And that's truly where he's left them now, completely unaware of what the point of the parable is. And so the fact that this one just seems so bizarre, it forced the question that I suspect they've been thinking all along, maybe even in some of the past parables, which is, why are you talking to us in riddles? Why does it always have to be riddles with you, Jesus? Just teach us what you mean us to know. Is it really that hard? Do we have to play games with this all the time? Why did Jesus teach in riddles? That's what a parable is, effectively. It's a riddle. It's something that only makes perfect sense after you know the answer. You notice that about riddles? Somebody asks you a riddle, and in the moment you can't begin to think of what it is, and then when they give you the answer, it's obvious, isn't it? Well, that's the nature of a parable. After you have the answer, it all fits perfectly. Before you have the answer, it can be pretty tough to understand where it's going. Didn't Jesus want the people to understand what he's saying? Isn't that the whole point? He's walking around, he's teaching other people. Isn't the whole point of teaching someone to let them know what you're trying to give them? What did Jesus say to that question? He said that the disciples were to know the meaning of Jesus' teaching, but not everyone. That's a strange answer, wouldn't you agree? For them, for these disciples, the truth would come in parables and they would get the answer. But for everyone else, the truth would come in parables and it would be inaccessible to them. Understanding this principle, understanding that only for those whom the truth is intended will know it, is important because it fits into the rest of this chapter. In fact, it fits into the rest of the gospel about why Jesus is ultimately rejected, about why the nation of Israel does not embrace their Messiah. Some interpreters have tried to explain away Jesus' comments, and they do it this way. They say, Jesus is simply telling his disciples that there are those who are unwilling to understand the truth and those, therefore, who won't understand it. And to those who weren't willing to understand the truth, the meaning of the parables would escape them and they would be left without the knowledge of the truth. So the excuse, if you will, or the explanation that's often given is that we're simply looking here at Jesus remarking on the fact that unless you're willing to hear the truth, unless your heart is open to it, when it comes to you, you're just not going to understand it. There's a verse in Matthew on this same parable that supports that view. It's verse, 13, or verse 15 of Matthew 13. It goes like this. For the heart of this people have become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. So it seems to support the conclusion that by closing their ears and their hearts, they've left themselves in this place. But I want to challenge you with this. That interpretation ignores the overall text we just read. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am intentionally speaking in riddles. His parables are hard to understand, regardless of the state of your heart. Folks, the disciples had to ask him what they meant. Do you think the disciples had a hard heart? Do you think the disciples were trying not to see? Do you think the disciples were disobedient to Christ? They don't understand it because it's being spoken in riddles. And then what does Christ say to that? He says, I will now give you the interpretation because to you it has been granted to know what this means. That's not just a matter of the people hearing and deciding not to understand and being too hard-hearted to understand. It is also a function of God himself deciding who will understand. And that's a challenging statement because it suggests that he's not in the business of deciding everyone will understand. In fact, he says it has not been granted to the others to know the truth. That's the word we read out of Scripture. Jesus is purposefully speaking in a veiled way, in a way that kept the real truth, the depth of his teaching, intentionally hidden. And I'll give you an example in case you're wondering if what I'm saying is true. This has happened before in Scripture. If you know the story of Isaiah the prophet, when God called Isaiah to be a prophet, remember the famous verse out of Isaiah, it's Isaiah 6, 8, and Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. That famous response from Isaiah. These are the words God then speaks to Isaiah in giving him his commission to go out and speak to the nation of Israel. Here's what he tells Isaiah. God said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. 
Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Now, that's an active verb on the part of God. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. He says, if I didn't render their hearts insensitive, they might actually hear you and be healed. Now, it was God's intent that the nation of Israel be judged for past disobedience. And in order to accomplish that judgment, he needed them to not respond to the prophet Isaiah, but rather remain in their sin as judgment came upon them. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus confronts Pharisees, men who just like the the crowd we've already described have been rejecting the message. Here's what he says in John chapter 8, 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come forth from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he has sent me. But you do not understand. Listen to this. You do not understand what I am saying, and it is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not understand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? And then Jesus answers that question. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. The Pharisees could not understand Jesus, though he spoke the truth, because they were not quickened by the power of the Holy Spirit. They did not have God himself giving them the answers, teaching them the meaning of Jesus' words. The problem for us here is that the listeners' disinterest in the truth and their own stubbornness is a contributing factor. But if they were to undo all of that, it wouldn't be enough for them to understand the words of Scripture. We all have said already that without the power of the Holy Spirit teaching us, this book makes no sense. And this book is simply the written version of what Jesus himself was speaking in that moment. So the process was no different then than it is now. The Holy Spirit had to be teaching the truth to the hearers or they would miss it. I think Christians often get caught in this trap that they set for themselves. You know, if we're not willing to devote ourselves to the hard work, of paying attention to Scripture and listening to the Holy Spirit on a day-to-day, regular basis, then when we get into a fix and we have some problem in our life and we turn to the Scripture and we want God to answer it, God, I need to know now, what should I do in this moment? I've got this crucial decision in my life. I don't think God answers that very often. I'll tell you why. Because if you're not in the mode of listening to Him on a regular basis, He's not going to patronize your desire to only come to Him when you need Him by giving you an answer on the spot. His answer is going to be, you know, if you would listen to me regularly, we wouldn't be in this problem. And here you are now wanting me to rush in and give you the answer, and then you're going to go back to your life tomorrow, and then I'll have to come and re-rescue in six months with a new answer. It doesn't work that way. God is more inclined to leave you in the place you put yourself for the discipline it provides than he is to rescue you every time you get yourself into a fix. Parents, you send a kid off to college, and he or she does everything wrong time and time again, and then comes to you for money. Are you helping them if you bail them out every time they do that? Eventually, you're better off leaving them where they are, letting them suffer the penalty of their mistakes, and then hopefully they'll get the message. That's God does that with us too. And the other reason, of course, is that all men are born of the nature of Adam. We can't understand God until he changes our hearts. Look how Matthew ends as we move now back into the parable. Matthew ends with one verse in response to the disciples' question. In Matthew 13:16, Christ says this to the disciples. After he had told them it had been granted to them to know the truth, he says this, Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. The fact that you're hearing and understanding this parable is proof that God has blessed you with that opportunity. And so we come to the interpretation for those who can hear. Luke 8, 11. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries 
and riches and pleasures of this life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen, for whoever has to him, more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. Well, we applied ourselves properly to the dissecting of the parable from the first part, going through the detail. So now I think we're in a better position to fully appreciate the meaning as Jesus provides it. He essentially gives a big picture interpretation, the overall point, if you will, of the parable. He leaves it to us, on the other hand, to go into the detail of it and really understand how it applies individually. And probably the biggest question in your mind, the same for most who've read this parable, is what kind of Christian or unbeliever, is being pictured by each of the four conditions. Maybe the hardest question for some to ask, where do I draw the line? Which of them are unbelievers and which of them are believers? Well, we're going to answer that today. First, Jesus said the seed is the word of God. Well, we don't have any question then about that, do we? The word of God. The thing that the farmer was distributing so liberally, so casually, even recklessly, is the word of God. So immediately, as we go into the interpretation, we're faced in this parable with the fact that the topic here is not about the farmer, as we've already said. And yes, it looks at different kinds of soil, but really the actor in this case is the word of God. The actor in this parable is the word of God. It's in the word of God being spread and its impact on those who hear it that's in view in this parable. Now, think about how timely this message is for the disciples and for the crowd in this moment. As they're hearing this message, why is it we said that people are reacting so differently to Jesus? Why is it that the crowd has so many different reactions to the same things being seen and spoken from Jesus? Because in Jesus' day, his words, the words that came out of his mouth, were the words of God. They were hearing the word of God as they heard him taught. Now today, we don't have him here in a physical form, but we have this. There is, functionally speaking, no difference between hearing this read aloud today and having been in Jesus' presence in the moment and heard the words come out of his own mouth. They're equivalent. They are the word of God in both cases. So in our day, we have the Bible. In his day, we were talking about his spreading of the word of God. But for us today, we can talk about the seed being this. This is the seed today. It's an effective, equivalent word of God to what Jesus was speaking in his day. And so as we study the parable, I want you to think of the seed now in terms of spreading, speaking, teaching, preaching this. That's what's in view now when we talk about the seed. What's one quick application you can apply for yourself out of this parable already on the basis that the seed is the word of God? Don't be stingy with it. There's plenty to go around. You don't need to worry about whether it's falling on the right place. You don't need to be concerned about the fact that you will throw some out and it will go away without any fruit. That it will be picked up by the birds of the air, so to speak, by the devil. That's not in our control. The farmer is not being given new instruction. The farmer is being told, throw this stuff around. In fact, if you look at the details of the parable, what would it argue you should do with the word of God? Throw it out more carefully or less carefully? Throw it out more or less, period. If you told me I had an unlimited bag of seed and I could throw it as much as I wanted to, The only right decision would be to throw it as far and as fast and as hard as you can and never stop. Because the more you get out there, the more chance some of it falls in the right soil, right? It's just a statistical problem. The problem is we wait for the right moments to speak the word of God. We we wait for the right setting. We wait until our schedule is good to get into the right Bible study. We, We are more concerned with all the pieces being there than with what the parable is teaching, which is, There's never not a right time for the word of God to be spread in any way possible in any moment. So now let's go through the four conditions. Given that the goal here is to spread the word of God, the question now is how does it impact those who hear it? There's the hard-packed soil, condition one again. This isn't a very hard one, right? This is a picture of a hard heart. A hard ground is the hard heart. It's packed hard. It's closed. Nothing will penetrate it. 
Not even the word of God. Not even the word of the creator himself. Nothing's getting through that heart. And when the word does arrive to someone like that, it just lies there. It just sits there. Unexposed, or exposed, unused. And the devil, concerned that it may one day find way to penetrate, isn't going to let it sit there very long. And spiritually speaking, what we're talking about here is the devil giving opportunity for that person to ignore the word of God. To take it out of their mind. To distract them from the moment. For, for that time when the neighbor says, will you come to church with me? The devil makes sure that there's some reason they can't go that weekend. The devil gives them some excellent football game that they really don't want to miss on TV. There's something that takes the word off the soil so that there's never a chance that it could penetrate a heart that it probably couldn't have anyway. This is the hopeless, unsaved sinner who will have nothing to do with God nor his word. And you can't impress him with the gospel message. But I want to add another quality to this person because you need to get the right picture in your mind if you're going to understand the other three conditions. This is someone who is not impressed by the word of God and he is willing, he or she, is willing to tell you that. They are that neighbor who says, don't give me any of that Christian nonsense. Cut it out with your preaching to me. I don't want to hear it anymore. I've heard it all before. It's all nonsense. You people just need to stay alone and leave the rest of us be. And it's holidays, not Christmas, by the way. Right? It's somebody who's against God, an unbeliever, and proud of it. That's the hard heart with no opportunity for the seed to penetrate. I wonder if this is the person that Jesus had in mind when he spoke to the disciples and he said, do not throw pearl before swine. Once you see that the ground is hard, quit throwing seed on it. You're just feeding the birds. At some point, if you can tell, then move on. Then you have the second condition. You have the condition where Christ says the rocky soil finds the seed. But here we have people, to put it in spiritual terms, here we have people who give you an initial reaction of faith. They're like that plant that sprouts very quickly, very easily, in fact, because the soil is actually suited to early, quick growth. There's a quick bloom, if you will. There's the appearance of a good start. But at the first sign of testing, they fall away. In the case of the plant, the story was that the thin soil had little chance of providing nourishment. There wasn't any moisture, Luke says. And so when you get a drought, which is the testing here, it falls away, it dies. But in the case of the person here, we're talking about trials. Christ has said, and he says elsewhere, and so do the New Testament writers in many places, that the essential proof of your faith is how you persevere through a trial or through a test. James says in James 1, 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul says to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Well, that's a challenging statement. What would you think if I stood up here one day and I looked at you all and I said, By the way, test yourself to find out if you're truly a believer. You'd almost be offended at that, wouldn't you? How dare he suggest I'm not a believer. It was important enough for Paul... Seeing how fleshly the Corinthian church was, seeing how poor they were at living out the faith they claim, it gives rise for him to stop and say, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. He says, examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless in, indeed you fail the test? What would a test be then of faith? If he asks you to test yourselves to find out if you are in fact in the faith, how do you do that? Is it written? Multiple choice? Essay? No, a test in this context means putting yourself in a place where being a believer is a significant problem for you, a significant disadvantage, and yet you still want to be a believer. Remember when Jesus speaks to the hypocrites back in chapter 6 of Luke? We studied a month or two ago. The hypocrites who had been accusing him of living with sinners, of partying with the tax collectors. What does he say to them? He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood occurred, the torrents burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. 
But the one who has heard and not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus in that moment is describing the two kinds of people. The one who can withstand the test and stay in their faith is a true believer. The one who can't is demonstrating by their willingness to forsake the faith under a trial, the fact that what they had in the beginning was not true faith. These are the folks who really represent the classic condition of a false confession. They are folks who look like Christians, but are not. And folks, we shouldn't be naive. These are folks that initially respond in some superficial way to the message of the gospel. They make a confession. They start going to church. They begin attending a home group, maybe even a Bible study. But then something shakes the foundations of their world. I've seen this happen, not a lot, but I've seen this happen to a few people. People I knew well, people I didn't know very well. I'm thinking of one man in particular years ago in a different church who was, by all accounts, a committed believer, had every indication he was a believer, and then he gets divorced. And that was the last time he went to church that I know of. Wouldn't call back anybody. Now, does that mean he's automatically an unbeliever? No, I'm not suggesting that. But I am suggesting that that pattern gives reason for us to question, well, wait a minute. If a divorce in your life, as trial, as difficult as that is, as traumatic as that is, no doubt. If that's enough for you to walk away from your association with your Lord and Creator who you said was saving you from your sin, well, wait a minute. What did you think that really meant, after all? People who have... Family members die, people who lose their job. Something happens in their life, and that's the excuse for them to just say, I'm done with this whole church thing. So much for that God. He didn't do anything for me. Those are the people who, who, if they were a true Christian, would be driven to the cross by their calamity, seeking the comfort and the strength of their Creator in the midst of their trial, but who rather decide that it's too much trouble and they didn't get what they expected. Our Lord is teaching here that the word, when it's spread indiscriminately, as it should be, is occasionally going to find people who do respond in a joyful way to it in the instant because it seems to appeal to something they're looking for. But only time will tell us the truth. And in a time of testing, when they fall away, they're demonstrating that there was no root. It was just a quick reaction, a fleshly reaction. They hear the message of the gospel and they decide to put aside all the dead works for whatever they were pursuing originally. And they're simply going to replace it with new works. The works of Christianity. Going to church. Tithing. Doing the communion. The baptism. All the things that we tell them to do in order to be a Christian. Never mind that there's really never any true faith in their Lord. They're just picking a new way to work their way to heaven. And when the trials come, they move on to something better. And I'm not talking here about the way Peter, for example, turned on the Lord in the time of his crucifixion and denied him three times. That's simply proof that a Christian can walk away in that moment of stress and trial and not lose their faith. Because ultimately, where did Peter end up? Ultimately, Peter came back into the fold. Christ met him again after his crucifixion, called him back into service, forgave him for his sin, and he moved on. We're not talking about that kind of a condition. We're talking about the person who turns and never looks back. By the way, those are the people who you might hear and, and see sometimes saying things like, I used to be a Christian once. You ever heard people say that? I used to be a Christian. A true Christian does not turn in that way. They can fall, they can stumble, they can fail, but they won't turn in that way. Now, I'm going to put condition three aside for just a moment. We're going to cover four because four is easy. Four is easy. Is clearly the mature and fruitful Christian, right? It's the one who hears the word. Their hearts are ready for it. They receive it. It germinates. It causes new life. And it grows through a maturing process to the point where they can actually reproduce. They can actually reproduce more of themselves. Think about it. They started as a seed. What's the fruit of this plant going to be? More seed. Here's a good question for you. How do I measure a mature Christian then if four, condition four, is a picture of a mature Christian? How much of the seed, how much of the word of God and its resulting new life are you distributing? To whom? How? How often? How much effect is it having? How many plants are out there, so to speak, because you were the one throwing the seed around? That's a a challenge for all of us. If you want to be one of these conditions, it's obvious which one we want to be. We want to be four. 
But four carries with it a burden. Four says if you think that's the right place to be, then you need to measure yourself by what it's written. And what is written there says you're so mature that you are helping others learn the word of God, perhaps, or hear it through an evangelistic role, perhaps. In some way, you're throwing seed around and you're producing new fruit. We all, I would imagine, could fail at that test at some level. There's always more seed to be thrown than what we're throwing. And myself included, there's no one in this room I would argue that's exempt from that. But it is still the desire that we should all share to get to that point that is really the the message of the fourth condition. All right, so conditions, let's put this into context as we finish up with condition three. If conditions one and two demonstrate two kinds of unbelievers, the unbeliever who looks like it and the unbeliever who doesn't look like it. And if condition four is certainly a believer who looks like it, then what do you think condition three is? Well, your first thing you want to notice here is that this is the first of the conditions. As you move through them in order, one, two, three, three is the first one where the soil is no longer a problem. Think about it. It's good enough that it not only can grow this plant, it can support any number of other plants too. The soil is not bad. The soil is not uh, incapable of supporting new plants. That's not the problem with this one. The soil is not the problem. In fact, the problem here is nothing to do with the soil. It has everything to do with what surrounds the plant. The plant grows. It begins to reach the point of maturity. But before it can ever move to that last step of actually producing its own fruit, it stopped short. And it stopped short because it's choked off, Christ says, by the cares and the riches of this world. So that it never moves to that last step of producing any fruit. Let's be sure to note here that the cares of the world here are not killing the plant. The plant never dies. The cares of the world are not preventing its initial growth or even reaching a point of stable life. We're talking here about the cares of the world preventing it from actually going to that last step of producing fruit. So here we're talking about a Christian, albeit a useless Christian. We're talking about a Christian with no fruit. And that, my friends, in the context of this parable means it's a useless Christian. I mean, if you're the farmer and you're sowing for seed with seed, what is your ultimate goal? To have a nice big pasture of plants? No. It's to recover that seed and many times more of it, right? The seed you're going to use to make bread or to eat or to plant your next field next year. If my field is filled with plants and none of them produce seed, is that a good year or a bad year? It's a useless Christian who comes into faith, grows up in some to some degree in their faith, but never reaches the point of producing the seed, which is the Word of God. In other words, reproducing themselves. (laughs) That, my friends, I would argue is the church today, right? I mean, if we were to be fair about it, look at the reasoning behind why those things don't place. We're talking about the riches, the pleasures, the distractions, the things that take away our attention, the things that take our energy away from the production of fruit. That's what's going on, by the way, with the plant. The reason a plant doesn't produce fruit when it's surrounded by weeds, they're choking off the light, they're taking the water. There's not enough energy left for the plant to produce fruit. The only energy it has is barely enough to keep itself alive in a steady state. There's nothing extra. There's enough to feed itself. There's enough for the plant to sort of keep itself alive. But if there's anything asked of it, if there's any demand beyond just itself, it has no available energy, no attention, no opportunity. That's what goes on biologically in plants that are surrounded by weeds. That's why they don't produce as much fruit. Similarly, in this parable, the Christian church, I would argue, for the most part today, is not condition one. I mean, that's not a church at all, if it were. And I think for many churches, it's probably not condition two, although I think for some of them it is. I think you do find churches that have many unbelievers in the pews acting like Christians, acting their Christian lifestyle hoping it gets them what they want. But as soon as there's a trial, they'll fall away, go to something else. And I think in every healthy church, you're going to find some of condition number four somewhere. The leadership, or hopefully the leadership, maybe some of the more mature members. You never know. But somewhere in most churches you'll find that if it's a healthy church. But condition three, I would argue condition three typifies the Christian experience, especially in rich countries like ours, because the distractions are so great. 
I mean, ask yourself this. What would a Condition 3 Christian look like? Picture in your mind, what is Jesus picturing in his mind when he says what he's saying about this person? Do you think you could pick them, up and pick them out in a lineup of Christians? What, would, what details in their life would you look for in order to know if you're looking at a Condition 3 Christian? What does it look like to be absorbed in the cares of this world? What does it look like to be pursuing the riches of this world? In fact, where do we think those thorns and and weeds even come from in the first place? Wouldn't we suggest those are the enemy, really, at work in the field, trying to choke off fruit? So, if you put all that together, wouldn't you then imply that the things that we find ourselves distracted by, that we think are so good, are really the things the enemy wants our attention on, because the longer we spend our time there, the less likely we are to ever mature to the point of producing the fruit that ultimately destroys him. I think it's fair to say that far too many Christians today are actually a perfect reflection of condition three, and the sadder part is they don't care. They really don't care. They're happy. They're serving themselves. The shame of it is that by the time they realize that they were sacrificing something in eternity for their willingness to forego bearing fruit here and now, it'll be too late for them to go back and fix that. And that's the message I would be wrong to ignore bringing to you this morning. There is a penalty. There is a consequence. The consequence is that God ultimately will be determining our responsibility and opportunity in eternity on the basis of what we do here and now with what he's given us. You know the parable of when he says, how will he trust you with much if you haven't been trustworthy with a little? He's talking about this very situation. A Christian who will never devote themselves to the effort required to mature and produce fruit now is a Christian who is proving themselves unworthy of greater responsibility and opportunity in the millennial kingdom, in the messianic kingdom, the thousand years where we will reign with Christ on earth. Our positions and our opportunities in that time are determined by what we do here and now in this life. Christ is telling this parable because the crowd around him is a mixture of all these soils, but only a fraction of this group is going to bear fruit. And just like the unbeliever had two conditions, so do the believers, those who look like it and those who don't. Can the world tell that we're believers when they look at us? In this room, yes. What about out there? Many days I have to wonder because, and I say this about myself too, because so few Christians I know, so often I know for myself, we're unwilling to turn our back on the cares and the pursuits of this world and actually pursue spiritual maturity and go with the sacrifices that it requires and therefore be able to reproduce our faith because it doesn't feel as good in the moment as doing what we want to do here. That's what Christ said. He said, you're going to sacrifice. You're going to have trials. You're going to be persecuted. It's not going to be fun. He says, endure it. Persevere. And you will have a crown of glory. Not your salvation you're working for, but the rewards that he holds out to all who are faithful. One day we're going to meet our Lord face to face. That's the truth for every man, woman, and child, believer or otherwise. But for the believer, it's not going to be our bank account that impresses Jesus. It's not going to be our house, any awards we win, the photo album of all the trips we took. It's not going to be the things this world values that will impress our Lord when we stand before Him and He asks us what we did with the time and opportunity He gave us here. That's not going to matter. He's going to ask us to show Him our fruit. I pray we all have some to show. Father, the word today may have convicted, it may have torn us apart from thoughts and and desires, We can only pray that's possible, Father. But I also pray that the Word would give us a sense for hope, a sense of joy even. The hope being, Father, that you've given us an opportunity that others don't have. And the joy being, Father, the knowledge that if we devote ourselves to the task you've set before us, there is fruit possible. There is opportunity, Father, to support and even expand the kingdom of God by how you choose to work through us in our obedience. Father, you didn't bring this small group together so that we could teach ourselves and serve ourselves. You didn't bring this group together, Father, so that we could uh, pride ourselves on what we know. You didn't bring this group together, Father, so that we could simply have the convenience of a church and a body that we're comfortable with. Those are good things, Father. We do appreciate them. We know that's also a part of the joy of meeting. But you brought this group together, Father. I'm convinced, I believe sincerely, Because you desire to work through us to build your kingdom. 
And you ask us to be devoted to that task. I pray, Father, we would feel that commitment. We would answer it. And I pray, Father, for the encouragement that would come from seeing fruit, even in the near term, Father, even just in simple ways, perhaps new people who would come and be a part of this group, even those who would hear this message and respond to it according to your will. In any way possible, Father, we pray that the fruit could be seen and shown and we could give you glory over it. I thank you for the message. I thank you for the opportunity, Father, to gather. And I pray that you be with us this week and by your will, bring us back again next Sunday. In Jesus' name. Amen.